You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. I am Dominic Chu, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Stocks are rallying, and bond yields have stopped their big slide. But with the 10-year at 1.3%, many people are looking for yield in junk bonds. Yes, high yield. But even that isn't keeping up with inflation these days. We'll explain. Plus, President Biden is about to sign an executive order aimed at technology companies. Should Google, Amazon, and others be scared? And in rapid fire today, staying home to work out, going out on dates, and an international dispute that's starting to bubble over. Yeah. But we begin with the rebound in stocks. Mike Santoli has those numbers, as you can see right there. Good afternoon, Mike. Hey, Dom. Yeah, an unusually kind of quick and complete reversal from that one-day shakeout, at least so far uh, yesterday. You know, three weeks ago, we had a little mini panic after the Fed meeting. got a couple percent to the downside. This was barely even that. Now, obviously, the big pressure point on the markets has been what's been happening with yields, what that means psychologically in terms of the economy and everything else. Got a little relief on that front. Uh, And here you see a one-year chart of the 10-year Treasury yield. It obviously looks like it really has rolled over from those highs a few months ago. But the big question is, is the overall trend changed? Believe it or not, not necessarily. Uh, It actually reversed higher on exactly its 200-day average. It doesn't always work that well, so technically. But at this point, it doesn't seem as if there's anything that's really gone on here to change the overall setup of at least somewhat higher yields, even if we don't see the 1.7 plus that we saw uh, a few weeks ago. Take a look at the push-pull in sectors uh, below the surface this week. And obviously, the the S&P 500 is on pace for about a quarter percent gain on net for the week. So nothing particularly dramatic. Uh, But here you see the interplay between materials and tech. It's kind of the two ends of the spectrum. Materials all about inflation, accelerating economy, global growth, whereas software is much more about the kind of disinflationary secular growth stories. And here you see, you know, tech opens up this big lead for a couple of days, uh, big sell off here in the materials at yesterday morning, and then a reversal. It's almost a wash uh, between those two things. So it seems as if, uh, Dom, uh, you have this sort of benign rotation that's still protecting the indexes from lasting damage. Protecting is for sure the right word because we did hit another, like you said, all-time high. Mike Santoli, thank you. We'll see you later on in the show. And that wild move that we've seen this week is a reset, maybe, for stocks and bonds. Joining us now are Nancy Pryor, co-CEO and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management. Also, Nisha Patel, director of fixed income portfolio management at Parametric. Thank you, ladies, both for being being with us here. I, Nancy, I'd like to start with you here. We, we just heard Mike Santoli talk a little bit about some of the undercurrents into, in, in this week's market action. Has there been anything that's happened over the last couple of days that's given you pause, maybe a little bit scared, just a little bit with markets at record highs? Not really. We continue to believe that this is simply a pause that refreshes, as you might say, in a broad advance that we've had for over a year now. The market needs to take some time to catch its breath, to recalibrate, to adjust to the fact that growth, in fact, is likely peaking, but is not going to go down to anywhere near what trendline growth had been. And what we've seen this year that we think has been so incredibly healthy for the market is one, that earnings are coming in faster than the market has been appreciated, which means multiples are coming down. The market is broadening. More of the foot soldiers are working. We're not just being led by a handful of stocks at the top. And economic growth is not only going to continue to be strong, but we think will actually continue to come in faster than people expect. 
So, so Nisha, I mean, faster, slower, it kind of talks to this notion of growth being at the focal point of this entire market move. You're a bond person by trade, so maybe you're a bit biased. But do you feel as though it is that 10-year Treasury note yield that's been at the epicenter of everything we've seen in the market volatility over the last few days? Uh, it, it has been. And, and I think, look, le- looking back over the past few days in, in this recent rally, uh, aside from today, you know, the big factor of the variant, no doubt, is throwing a wrench in, in this growth trajectory. Uh, and we've been seeing that price in the market. But I think what you also have here is a bond market that's been used to uh, pretty strong and consistent data, right? Being wowed, if you will. And recent ISM data, jobs data has been uh, possibly you can call it below expectations. I would still say the underlying growth story is still there. Uh, labor markets slowly but surely are improving. Uh, and but but again, you've seen a bond market really kind of recalibrate its expectation. Uh, and and I personally think it was certainly overdone. And and some of that move, obviously, we're seeing reverse back today, uh, which you could argue maybe that growth story isn't completely gone. And possibly this rally was even somewhat of a technical move, right, to cover short positions. So, 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 Nisha, could I follow up on that? Because I've heard the same thing from a number of investors and traders out there that it was a positioning move. It was short covering in treasuries. Maybe that's starting to run its course here. But if we take a look at the way that the market's positioned now, can we expect more of this choppiness in, say, the next six to 12 months? I think you can. And look, next week, we are slotted to have a lot of new data, right? CPI, inflation figures, uh, retail sales. Next week, I think it's going to be a big week on whether or not this bond market finds some sort of a newer footing, right? Again, that recalibration of expectation. Otherwise, I think you can well kind of uh, into next week and beyond see some of this volatility continue. I do think, however, that if the variant fears are reduced, uh, that underlying, again, growth story is still there. Now, the, the bigger kind of question here, and obviously the bigger focus for the bond market, is the Fed's narrative, the Fed's language, their policy and their framework and, and kind of their timeline. Um, look, labor markets, I think, need to see a significant improvement before the Fed really looks to talk about tapering sure. and give some sort of a timeline. And I don't think that happens well until the fall. So, Quite possible that, you know, no doubt over the next two, three months, you could see a quite a bit of choppiness and then beyond that, too. OK, so, so if that choppiness is in play, that's the macro backdrop. Nancy, we're going to give the last word to you because Nisha mentioned next week. Next week is full, chock full of microeconomic and company specific catalysts. We kick off bank earnings season. The new season starts again. What exactly are the things that you will be watching for and what exactly is going to drive your stock picking in the coming weeks, given earnings season? Right. So we are going to be looking very much for top line growth. Can companies continue to beat and surprise over what are quite healthy expectations on the top line? And then also, what are they seeing in terms of their margins? We know about what we've seen on some commodity price increases. We all know what we're seeing on wage price increases. Can companies continue to expand their markets and surprise on the bottom line? We are focused on companies that have the blend of both good growth prospects as well as attractive valuations. So we think that should we get the positive prices that we're expecting as a scenario where those companies and those stocks, therefore, can continue to do very well. And I think right now we are in an innovation super cycle 
where there are tremendous opportunities in a number of areas, both traditional and non-traditional growth, whether it's healthcare, industrials, technology, even some of the energy and some of the commodity sectors. All right. And Nancy, before we let you go here, we just flashed up some of those names that you like. 3D Systems, also Meritor, Verisite, ViewRay, Avid Bioservices. Thank you both very much. Nisha Patel, also Nancy Pryor as well. Have a nice weekend, both of you. Well, now to an area of the market that is seeing huge demand. Investors seem to be piling into junk bonds as they look for yield as Treasury rates have been dropping as of late. The rally in junk bonds has pushed yields to record low levels, so low, in fact, that they're now below the inflation rate for the first time on record going all the way back, as you can see there, to 1986. So is all this demand, this hunt for yield, creating a risk that we may be ignoring. Let's ask Michael Kontopoulos, Director of Fixed Income at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Michael, you just heard the conversation we had with regard to our equity and bond panel. There is choppiness that Nisha Patel is expecting. Is this the reason why we are seeing maybe a little bit of activity on the Treasury side of things, but not as much on the high yield side? You know, that's a good question, Dom. I think the the high yield market and the credit markets in general are telling you that the growth slowed down, that it appears that the Treasury market has priced in over the last week is, is overdone. Um, you haven't really seen credit spreads widen all that much. And as you mentioned, all in yields are at historic lows. One thing that I would make sure I stress is I think comparing high yield yields to, to real yields is a little bit, you know, maybe not the best thing to do given the current environment. We all know CPI is very high at the moment. We all know there are base effects that are affecting CPI. At RBA, we think inflation is likely going to be higher than normal and more persistent than, than people expect, but we don't expect five or 6% inflation to last for all that long. So your real yield for high yield is going to go up over coming months. But having said that, listen, there's no doubt that nominal yields or the absolute level of yields are historically low. That's a large part because of, A, as you mentioned, reach for yield, but B, also much more improving fundamental picture for the high yield market and for the corporate market. So so, so I, I'd like to stick on that point right there, because we can talk about other parts of the fixed income market. Treasury obviously has some real issues around, you know, the Fed and central bank intervention, bond buying programs and whatnot. But oftentimes you look towards credit, not just investment grade, but specifically high yield as an indicator of possible stress down the line. And it's showing nothing right now. Right. I mean, we can talk about That's equity right. markets, maybe trying to correct a bit. But junk bonds have historically shown us the way forward. They're not doing so now. Is that justified? Yeah, I, th I think it is justified, Dom. It's one of the reasons at RBA, we still are levered to the cyclical trade on the equity side as well. You know, the high yield market does do usually a phenomenal job at, at indicating risk before equity investors have, have figured it out. Um, when you look at high yield, leverage is collapsing, earnings are accelerating, and the default rate is plummeting. Uh, you know, we had a 9.5% default rate in the United States in 2020. That has already plummeted to roughly 2.5%. And our model suggests that within the next 6 to 12 months, the default rate likely falls to 1%. And as a high-yield investor, one of the things that you want to look at, perhaps the most important thing you want to look at, is how much yield or how much spread are you earning relative to the losses you may take because of defaults. And since defaults have plummeted and since expectations for defaults continue to decline every single month as those earnings accelerate and as companies 
you know, have very low interest payments because of the absolute level of rates and the fact that they've termed out their debt. As all of this is happening, even though yields are very low, the compensation you're getting for expected default losses, particularly in early maturity, zero to three year type maturity paper and high yield, still actually looks pretty attractive. The fundamentals are strong. All right. Uh, Michael Kantopoulos, thank you very much for those thoughts on high yield. We appreciate it. Uh, we got to leave it there. We got a market flash coming up here. We do have shares of Biogen heading lower at this hour. And Meg Terrell is here with the reason why. Meg. Hey, Dom. We are seeing that the acting commissioner of the FDA, Dr. Janet Woodcock, uh, is tweeting out that she's asked the office of the inspector general at HHS uh, to conduct an independent review of the process for um, approving Aduhel, that's Biogen's new Alzheimer's drug. She says, quote, given the ongoing interest in questions today, I requested that OIG conduct an independent review and assessment of interactions between representatives at Biogen and FDA during the process that led to the approval of Aduhelm. Uh, now, she notes that some of these questions could potentially shake trust in the industry, and she's asking that they undertake this review if they agree to do it uh, quickly. This comes after reporting from Stat News that uh, there was a meeting between Biogen's chief of research and a key regulator at the FDA at a neurology conference about this drug as it looked like the drug had failed in trials. Uh, and then there were signs that perhaps it might have worked. And so uh, the reporting suggested this was sort of an off-the-books meeting that may have been outside of normal, at least norms, for the FDA process. And so there have been a lot of questions about this drug. Biogen shares down there 3% on this. Um, there have been a lot of questions about the drug beyond just the approval process, about the data itself, and then more recently, the price that was set when it was approved in June. So, Dom, this is a controversy. We've seen it go to Congress. It's going to continue to brew. Back over to you. So, so Meg, if you'll allow me to follow up for a second. First of all, the shares are down 3.5%. It's almost 1.4 million shares of volume, so we're seeing a bit of, of a pickup here. Can you just kind of set the scene for us yet again, because not all of us follow it as closely as you do. What exactly is the controversy around the reason why Biogen's and, and its approval process has gained so much scrutiny? Alzheimer's and everything else has been a huge point of contention for a lot of folks out there in the past. Why is it that this particular drug is getting so much more attention because of that regulatory review process? Yeah, so a lot of people have Alzheimer's disease, 6 million people, and no drugs have ever been um, approved that actually work on its underlying causes. And so Biogen has this drug which clears amyloid plaques from the brain. Uh, it sh does that indisputably. What was in dispute as is whether the clinical trials proved that that actually led to a benefit in um, memory and being able to think clearly. And because of those mixed data, the FDA's outside panel of advisors voted almost unanimously against approval of this drug. Then the FDA found this creative pathway in approving it based on an accelerated approval pathway, saying because it clears those plaques, it's likely to have those benefits on memory and thinking clearly. Biogen has to prove that. But the drug got on the market, and then Biogen set a price tag of $56,000. So we've been seeing a lot of just machinations and sort of churning around this, the FDA actually narrowing the label of who should get this drug uh, earlier in the week down to about 2 million patients with early Alzheimer's disease. So there's just a ton of controversy over whether this drug works and then, of course, over its price tag and how the FDA handled the approval, Tom. All right. Meg Terrell with the latest on Biogen. Thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, big tech in the crosshairs once again with the president expected to sign executive orders targeting anti-competitive practices later on this hour. But is this as far as the federal crackdown will actually go, or can we expect Congress 
to take similar or even further actions. We'll discuss. Plus, RBC is swiping right on Bumble and Match. If you know what that means, you're younger. Initiating both with an outperform rating. We'll tell you why the firm is feeling the love when we come back on the show. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. President Biden is set to sign an executive order targeting anti-competitive practices in big technology companies. Elon Moy is in Washington, D.C. with the details of that order and what it means for the biggest companies in tech and communications. Good afternoon, Elon. Well, hi, Dom. The executive order from the White House tries to tackle three big problems surrounding big tech. So-called killer acquisitions of budding competitors, the massive accumulation of sensitive personal data, and unfair competition against small businesses. Now, the White House wants the DOJ and the FTC to ramp up their scrutiny of the industry and make sure they focus not just on price and antitrust cases, but also things like privacy. The order also specifically calls on the FTC to write new rules on how tech platforms collect data, track users, and compete with third-party sellers on their own marketplaces. White House Chief Economic Advisor Brian Deese told me he sees a direct link between increasing consolidation and declining innovation, both in big tech and across the economy. This is creating more opportunity for innovation uh, and, uh, and, and growth. Consolidation, uh, when, when, we, when it, it, it goes too far, actually stifles what is the principal job creator and the per- principal economic engine in the U.S. economy, which is new businesses, small businesses, emerging businesses. Now, we reached out to Facebook, Apple, Google, and Amazon for comment. We haven't heard back yet, Dom, but the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is slamming this executive order as a, quote, centralized government dictate. Dom? All right, Elon Moy with the latest there. Thank you very much. So what do these executive orders mean for the tech industry? If the president wants to challenge prior mergers, does it mean Facebook could hypothetically be broken up? And what does the return of net neutrality mean for some of the biggest users of Internet bandwidth, like social media, and streaming video companies. Let's now bring in Brent Thill, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst over at Jefferies. This is a a fascinating topic because what these folks in the Beltway will do is going to have direct commerce and competitive impacts on the biggest and most consequential sector out there. Take us through an analyst's point of view. What exactly should these companies fear? Dominic, I think they've been dealing with this for a long time. And, and as you recall, the government just dropped charges against Facebook uh, because uh, a court order said that this wasn't going to be able to be held up. So ultimately, we've been living with this for 20 plus years in tech. Uh, while the president speaks, we all listen but and take it seriously. But I think for investors, there's nothing to worry. Uh, if these companies uh, were broken up, and if we were wrong, we do not believe they're broken up, investors make more money. The sum of the parts are are, are uh, worth more than the whole. So we think ultimately, you're hoping that I'm wrong. I don't think we're wrong. We lived through the Microsoft case of the 90s. Nothing happened. The stock went straight uh, up. Uh, Facebook, at the beginning of the year, everyone was concerned. Facebook stock has massively outperformed the market. All big cap tech is outperforming the Nasdaq comp this year. So I, I think we've we've seen kind of multiple 
attempts uh, at a scare of big tech. And ultimately, we think there's a middle ground, right? The government has to do what they have to do to protect us as consumers. The tech companies have to innovate. There's middle ground. We think these big tech companies will find the middle ground. We think these stocks are going higher from, from our perspective. And that's been our perspective for a while. So I think uh, that has not changed in terms of our tune. Brent, Brent, I mean, you, you cover a, a, an interesting array of companies. They're not all pure tech. Some of them are internet. Some of them are communication services based. Some of them are even retail, depending on the kind of tilt you look at. Which of these companies is navigating this kind of regulatory landscape the, the, the best, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at investors have gone to the software group, uh, the SaaS multiples are trading in the stratosphere if you look at multiples in, in software. And so those names investors have felt safer in because there's not the overhang of the regulatory uh, action. Internet has always traded at a discount. We think that's attractive for investors. When you look at Google trading at discount to its EBITDA, Facebook, you know, trading at a, a mid, mid to high 20%, uh, 20 times on earnings. You start to look at this, and they're not uh, really uh, uh, expensive stories. So we think you know software has traded premium because of of uh, you know their their perceived immunity to what's happening on the government actions. Uh, and ultimately, I think that's been a great thing for internet stocks, which is they're cheap and they have this ongoing fear. As we travel the globe and talk to our, our clients globally at Jefferies in every region of the world, regulatory overhang is the number one fear. And what we keep saying is. Pay attention, respect it, but it will not impact your, your investment. And look at what's happened in the last one to five to 10 years and look at past 20 years plus for Microsoft. So the playbook is working. Investors should stay with big, tech, big cap tech. None of these tech names are, are falling today because of the order. So if you know, I think investors are becoming more immune to what's happening. But software right now has definitely uh, been the place to, to be and, and is, has been the shelter uh, for, for, for this regulatory overhang. Brent, Brent, before we let you go, I mean, one of the, the companies that, that many of us have an interest in, not just because it affects all of our lives as consumers, but because we watch the stock valuation keep going higher, minting the world's richest man in Jeff Bezos now. Amazon, the landscape for them right now going forward. We know that Amazon Web Services is a juggernaut. We know that they're losing some share to some of the up-and-comers, including even Microsoft's Azure. Does Amazon's story get better? Does it justify the valuations that we're seeing after the Jedi announcement? That stock shot up to a new record. Yeah, stock's going to 4,200 from our perspective. We, we really believe in the story and, and believe that under Jassy, he knows how to run high margin, high recurring businesses. And we think Amazon is, is still uh, got room to, to go. Stock's had a nice recovery in the last couple of weeks, but it, we put it on our top picks franchise list and believe it's underperformed the other uh, mega cap names. So Amazon's our, our number one idea right now in mega cap tech. Uh, we, we think Jassy's a phenomenal addition. And again, if anyone's worried about uh, margin uh, deterioration, you've brought in a guy that knows high margin businesses, high recurring revenue. And most of the companies we're working with here at Jefferies uh, are, are standardizing on AWS. And that is a five to 10 year minimum commitment, minimum. So you have incredible visibility in a really high margin business. We like what Amazon's doing. All right, Brent Thill, top pick Amazon. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. You too. Thanks. All right. Well, coming up on the show, fintech company Stripe is reportedly taking its first step towards a stock market debut. But is this the first time for the digital payments darling to take the plunge into the public market? Is it the right time? We will debate coming up.
Welcome back to the exchange. Markets right now near their session highs. The Dow is up about 412 points at the highs. It was up 460 at the lows. It was up 35. So, yes, tilting higher right now. Here are some of the movers at this hour to keep an eye on. Apple shares are hitting an all-time high today as the information reports that it's in early talks with the NFL to acquire the streaming rights to the league's Sunday ticket package. The NFL's current agreement with DirecTV expires after the 2022 football season. Elsewhere in sports, DraftKings jumped to a session high here in the last few minutes as it announces an expanded relationship with Major League Baseball that will allow DraftKings users to bet on and watch a free live MLB game within the app itself. Those shares up about 2%. And shares of AMC are poised for their worst week since March and longest losing streak since December after a volatile week where the company said it would no longer seek to issue more stock. Those shares down another almost 2% today. Loop Capital says it would be a huge mistake for shareholders to stop that sale at what the analyst perceives to be highly inflated prices. Now, for more on that call, head over to cnbc.com slash pro. Subscribers get a big look at that full note. Now let's send it to Leslie Picker, who has a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Leslie. Hey, good afternoon, Dom. Here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden told Russian President Putin in a phone call today that his government must take action against cyber criminals to halt ransomware attacks. The White House says Biden also told told Putin the U.S. will take any necessary action to defend Americans and critical U.S. infrastructure. The mayor of Miami-Dade County announcing 14 more bodies have been found in the debris of the collapsed condo in Surfside. The death count is now 78, with 62 possibly unaccounted for. The mayor says search crews are still working with urgency in their 16th day of looking for victims in the rubble. The Taliban now says it controls 85 percent of Afghanistan following a string of military victories. The statement is hard to verify, but up sharply from the 33 percent that the Taliban claimed previously. An Afghan warlord says the, the quick withdrawal of American troops, allied, uh, allied troops, left Afghanistan's military demoralized and badly prepared for Taliban attacks. Tonight on the news, Richard Engel on the Taliban's quick spread in the absence of foreign troops and what's being done to slow them down. Back over to you, Dom. All right, Leslie Picker, thank you very much for that. Rapid Fire is next on The Exchange. RBC thinks people are ready to go out. A huge unicorn may be going public, and a long-simmering international dispute is bubbling over, bubbly style. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's catch you up with a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire and here to help break down the headlines. Michael Santoli, Robert Frank, Ina Freed, the chief technology correspondent over at Axios. Thank you all for being here. First up on the docket, payment processing company Stripe has retained a law firm to help with their public debut. That's according to a report from Reuters. Now, it's a major step towards the public markets for one of the most valuable private companies out there. A recent fundraising round valued Stripe at 95, yes, $95 billion, which would be by far the largest debut this year. Sources telling Reuters Stripe is considering a direct listing instead, though, that could change and that it's, quote, unlikely it will happen this year. Maybe we'll start with Ina on this. I mean, how big of a deal is this in terms of the overall fintech landscape? Stripe, for the, for the people who don't know, is like the underlying piece of fabric that goes into just about everything app-wise in every financial product that you touch. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the fascinating thing about Stripe is they're huge and most people have never heard them. You just don't see them. Um, but if you're in finance, that's a great place to be where everyone's, you're in the middle of everything, everyone's sending you money. And it's kind of like the private markets. I mean, you know, we sort of have this attitude that if a company doesn't go public, they don't exist. Um, and to be quite frank, if you have a business model that doesn't require you to have access uh, to influxes of capital, like there's a lot of benefits to being private. Now, obviously, there are downsides, which is why I think they're probably considering it again. So, 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 Mike, I, I mean, if this were to if it were to come out hypothetically, would it be a good time to do so? I mean, they've given a longer time horizon for this thing possibly to come out, but this is a good time, right, for fintech companies to go public from a valuation perspective. I think it's undoubtedly a good time in terms of the themes that investors are obsessed with right now. Obviously, electronic payments, anything payments oriented uh, has been, you know, being given very generous valuations in the public market. Stripe has been this sort of acclaimed kind of almost category killer in this area. The big question is, have they reaped most of their valuation advantage in the private market? The hundred billion is tremendous to, to come out at uh, in terms of size. And a lot of the direct listings have not traded particularly well initially as soon as they've come out. Whether you look at Coinbase, you know, Airbnb, DoorDash, uh, the real mega cap direct listings sometimes have not been uh, necessarily great performers immediately. Now, there's differences. Roblox has been good. Uh, I would also say if the main reason, too, is to give employees and early investors liquidity in the public markets, that tells you that most of it's going to be coming from the sell side. One final point, there's always a better mousetrap built on newer software. So I wonder how durable uh, Stripe's advantage is going to be seen as. All right. So Stripe, certainly a very anticipated possible public listing there soon. Next up, we've got RBC. The analysts out, out there are with the double outperform initiation today on dating. Match Group and Bumble as well. The analysts are projecting the addressable market for online dating could double by the year 2025 to an estimated $16 billion. And get this, the note says there is, quote unquote, growing evidence that online dating produces more durable marriages than offline. Bumble and Match shares, you can see they're both getting a bid in today's trade, up Match Group 2.5%. You can see Bumble up even more than that. Robert Frank, I, I, look, I, I turn to you knowing that you are off the market and not on these platforms, <laughs> but I tend to look at these things from a, from a pop culture perspective. I want to look at them in terms of what it speaks to, this notion about whether or not the American economy, Americans in general, want to get back out there and do things. Is this probably an iron is hot type setting for these types of companies? Look, the timing is right. You're absolutely right. People do want to go out. They do want to meet people again in physical settings. But also, in terms of the pop culture issue, it's not just dating anymore. There was a great article in the Wall Street Journal about how Bumble had started this BFF, where especially women were going on dating sites uh, and meeting platonic friends. It's a place to meet people with common interests. And that could be a growth area as well beyond just traditional dating. So if you look at the margins for these companies, again, these notes saying that the uh, addressable market will more than double in five years. There is a lot of upside. Bumble stock has not done that well post IPO. So there is room to run there. Uh, and again, this is a space it's, even at the top end. There are these new sort of high end sites like Raya where Ben Affleck and uh, some of these other stars are going that have kind of made it more acceptable to be on. Now, now, Ina, if you look at these types of platforms, 
One of the biggest knocks from people even in my generation or older is that it's not really something that you do. It's intimacy, right? You don't find that on the internet or through a smartphone app. Is the paradigm changed enough and will it change enough in the future that many of these competitors can actually find decent slices of economic pie to kind of go and capitalize on for these particular types of dating sites? I think there is. I mean, if you look at the market, I mean, it's the definition of an evergreen market. There's going to be people wanting to find dates. I think you hit at the key point, which is you've got to be doing it in the way people want to do at the moment, um, which is interesting when you look at Match. I mean, they run a bunch of different dating sites. And so I think if they can use that technology and their smarts and keep spinning out new brands that appeal to the next generation of daters, I think that's got a lot of life. I mean, again, if someone comes in and finds a better way of matchmaking, they're going to have a huge market. And so I think the question is, do you bet on the people that have been doing it for a while and say they're going to be able to evolve? Or do you see this as constantly changing? Unlike social networks, which I think nobody wants to be on the social network their parents were on. Um, I think with dating, it's really just where are the people I want to meet? And now, Mike Santoli, you're a parent. Are you scared for this online dating (laughs) stuff that your kids will have to go through at some point? My policy is just to be scared in general uh, as to whatever (laughs) might come their way. But what I do think is is undoubtedly true is no younger generation ever sets aside all the tools available to them technology-wise to do whatever they want to do. So there's almost no doubt that this is going to be the dominant mode of doing things. One one issue longer term is, you know, you run out of customers, the more successful you are. Presumably people (laughs) pair up and they no longer are on the site. Fair. That's a fair point, Mike Santoli. All right, moving on here. It's a debate we've heard for months now. What is the future of working out post-pandemic? Industry analysts conducted by the trade group IHRSA found that fitness industry revenues plummeted 58 percent from 2019 to 2020. Now, a drop off that permanently closed an estimated 17 percent of all gym facilities nationwide. Meanwhile, on the flip side, Peloton's revenue doubled in the last year, while the market continues to be flooded with at home technology products from Apple, Mirror, you name them. And now, now, Ina, you wrote about this today. Who's going to win the fitness battle? at home or at the gym, I kind of feel like human nature and what we've seen with New York real estate tells me it's going to go back to quote unquote normal. Well, I'm not totally convinced that's the case. I do think when you look, though, at the fact that there's just fewer players in the in-person space, that does speak well to the companies that are have been able to keep their doors open, uh, that you know more of the market is available to them. I think we're seeing a lot of innovation on both sides. So we're seeing the home-based folks at a lot of community. That was what was always lacking. There's always been exercise bikes and treadmills at home. That's the thing you throw your clothes over. Um, But I think what Peloton has shown is if you add community, suddenly you get a much more sticky, much more powerful environment. But the gyms also are picking up on technology. So Apple Watch has technology to integrate with the equipment at your gym. Um, They're building in technology and they're offering hybrids. They had to offer classes online during the pandemic. And the folks that I talk to say the gyms of the future will have a mix of things you can do in person and things you can do from home. All right. So a a huge move there. And of course, we're always watching for the kind of income spectrum for who uses Pelotons and mirrors versus who goes to a planet fitness. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of variables there. All right, I want to move on to this last topic because it is an interesting one here. The tensions right now are bubbling over between Russia and France. 
in a champagne dispute. Yes, you heard that right, a champagne dispute that may need to be resolved by the World Trade Organization. A new law in Russia would allow Russian producers to label their version of champagne as champagne instead of the customary sparkling wine designation given to producers outside of the actual Champagne region of France. Now, France is responding directly as the director general of the Champagne Committee saying, quote, we are shocked. Robert, are you as shocked about Champagne as the folks in France are? The director general of the Champagne Committee. I mean, there, there's a job we'd all like to have, right? <laughs> I mean, this is basically like the Russians asking the French to put, quote, fish eggs on Russian Ocetra caviar. It's, it's just not done. And the French just are, treat these labels, whether it's Champagne, whether it's Bordeaux, whether it's Gruyere cheese, as sacred. I mean, they invest so much economically in these names being abroad and securing them for every country. But again, the, the Russians aren't telling them to take the champagne label off the bottle. They're just saying that on the back, you have to add sparkling wine. So again, they know exactly how to get to the French. They knew this would upset them. This comes at a tough time for champagne. Champagne sales were down 18% during the pandemic. They've started coming back. Uh, but it's, it's not surprising the French are responding. So, so, so Michael Santoli, are you a, are you a champagne kind of guy? Or are you more of a sparkling wine, Napa Valley kind of thing? I would always have been pretty agnostic, to be honest with you, as to where I came from. But I find it, you know, I don't think that there's like a sympathetic player in this. It's just hilarious. I think that both of them, uh, Russia kind of trolling France and France, you know, more or less playing to type and, uh, and, and falling for it. Um, and, and the idea that by simply putting sparkling wine in a champagne bottle somehow it places it to a customer's view at parity with whatever Russia produces. Is, is kind of amusing in itself. I don't know. Japan makes some pretty good whiskey these days, and Americans make some pretty good vodka. Yeah. So that's all I got to say about that. Anyway, thank you guys very much. Michael Santoli. You Santo can't call it scotch. Yes, I'm not going to call it scotch. Michael Santoli, <laughs> Robert Frank, Ina Fried. Thank you guys very much. Have a nice weekend, guys. All right, concerns about the Delta variant, a key reason for stocks falling yesterday. But does today's rebound mean that those worries were overblown? We'll look at what's being done to prevent Delta from causing a COVID comeback coming up. Well, markets are rebounding today after yesterday's sell-off when worries about the Delta variant of COVID hurt stocks. Even though markets are shrugging it off today, there are concerns that masks could make a comeback as we head indoors after the summer season. Let's bring in Meg Terrell for more on that Delta variant and the efforts, Meg, to fight it. Hey, Dom. Well, the CDC calls this a hypertransmissible variant. And just to remind folks about what that means, if we all remember the so-called UK variant, it's now called Alpha, was a lot more contagious than the original virus. Delta is thought to be perhaps 60% more contagious than Alpha, or maybe twice as infectious as the original virus. And so what the CDC is warning about is that this will really take off in areas that have lower vaccination rates. And that's what we're seeing in CDC's data. Evercore ISI has this great graphic showing the prevalence of Delta regionally. It's really highest in those states around Missouri, where, of course, we are seeing some of the worst effects of Delta right now. And then also in the states to the north and west of that at 74%. And it's really going to cause trouble for areas with low vaccination. The CDC has this graphic showing the areas of highest transmission and lowest vaccination Shh, Shh, rates. Meg, Meg, uh, Meg I just, the pink I'm, there. That Meg, lower Meg, I, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I, my apologies, my, my, my profound apologies. We have to get to the White House right now. We have breaking news on President Biden making some remarks about the economy. That's why the American Rescue Plan was designed to help people not just all at once, but over the course of a full year. 
so we could continue supporting families, small businesses, state and local budgets to help them weather those ups and downs. And now that the economy is back on track, we're making progress on the second phase of our strategy, ensuring long-term growth. That's what my Build Back Better agenda, including my American's Family Plan and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Agreement we reached last month, that's what they're all about, long-term. But to keep our country moving, we have to take another step as well. And I know you're all tired of hearing me during the campaign and since I'm elected president talk about it. And that's bringing fair competition back to the economy. That's why today I'm going to be signing shortly an executive order promoting competition to lower prices, to, to lower prices, to increase wages, and to take another critical step toward an economy that works for everybody. The heart of American capitalism is a simple idea, open and fair competition. That means that if your companies want to win your business, they have to go out and they have to up their game. Better prices and services, new ideas and products. That competition keeps the economy moving and keeps it growing. Fair competition is why capitalism has been the world's greatest force of prosperity and growth. By the same token, competitive economy means companies must do all they do to do everything they do to compete for workers, offering higher wages, more flexible hours, better benefits. But what we've seen over the past few decades is less competition and more concentration that holds our economy back. We see it in big agriculture, in big tech, in big pharma. The list goes on. Rather than competing for consumers, they are consuming their competitors. Rather than competing for workers, they're finding ways to gain the upper hand on labor. And too often, the government has actually made it harder for new companies to break in and compete. Look at what that means for family budgets. Take prescription drugs. Just a handful of companies control the market for many vital medicines giving them leverage over everyone else to charge whatever they want. As a result, Americans pay two and a half times more for prescription drugs than in any other leading country. And nearly one in four Americans struggles to afford their medication. Another example, hearing aids. Right now, if you need a hearing aid, you can't just walk into a pharmacy and pick one up over the counter. You have to get it from a doctor or a specialist. Not only does that make getting hearing aids inconvenient, it makes them considerably more expensive. And it makes it harder for new companies to compete, innovate, and sell hearing aids at lower prices. As a result, a pair, a pair, of, he, a pair of hearing aids can cost thousands of dollars. That's a big reason why just one in seven Americans with hearing loss actually use a hearing aid. Another example, internet services. There are more than 65 million Americans live in a place with only one high-speed internet provider. Research shows when you have a limited internet operation, you pay up to five times more on average than families in places with more choices. That's what a lack of competition does. It raises the prices you pay. It's not just consumers getting hurt. Big Ag is putting a squeeze on farmers. Small and family farms, first-time farmers, like veterans coming home and black and Latino and indigenous farmers. They're seeing price hikes for seed, lopsided uh, con contracts, 
shrinking profits and growing debt. Lack of competition hurts workers as well. In many communities, there are only a handful of employers left competing for workers. Think of company towns across Appalachia and other parts of the country where one big corporation runs the show. When corporations have that kind of leverage over workers, it pushes down it pushes down advertised wages by up to 17 percent. And as competition decreases, businesses don't feel the pressure to innovate or invest in their workforce. That hurts working families and hurts our economy. All told, between rising prices and lowering wages, lack of competition costs the median American household $5,000 a year. Well, look, <clears throat> I'm a proud capitalist. I spent most of my career representing a corporate state of Delaware. I know America can't succeed unless American business succeeds. But let me be very clear. Capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. It's exploitation. Without healthy competition, big players can change and charge whatever they want and treat you however they want. And for too many Americans, that means accepting a bad deal for things that can't go, you can't go without. So, we know we've got a problem, a major problem, but we also have an incredible opportunity. We can bring back more competition to more of the country, helping entrepreneurs and small businesses get in the game, helping workers get a better deal, helping families save money every month. Good news is we've done it before. In the early 1900s, President Teddy Roosevelt saw an economy dominated by giants like Standard Oil and J.P. Morgan's railroads. He took them on, and he won. And he gave the little guy a fighting chance. Decades later, during the Great Depression, his cousin Franklin Roosevelt saw a wave of corporate mergers that wiped out sec scores of small businesses, crushing competition and innovation. So he ramped up antitrust enforcement eightfold in just two years, saving families billions in today's dollars and helping set the course for sustained economic growth after World War II. He also called for an economic bill of rights, including, quote, the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies, end of quote. Between them, the two Roosevelt's established an American tradition, an antitrust tradition. It's how we ensure that our economy isn't about people working for capitalism. It's about capitalism working for people. But over time, we've lost the fundamental American idea that true capitalism depends on fair and open competition. Forty years ago, we chose the wrong path, in my view, following the misguided philosophy of people like Robert Bork, and pull back on enforcing laws to promote competition. We are now 40 years into the experiment of letting giant corporations accumulate more and more power. And where, what have we gotten from it? Less growth, weakened investment, fewer small businesses. Too many Americans who feel left behind. Too many people who are poorer than their parents. I believe the experiment failed. We have to get back to an economy that grows from the bottom up and the middle out. The executive order I'm soon going to be signing commits the federal government to full and aggressive enforcement of our antitrust laws. 
No more tolerance for abusive actions by monopolies. No more bad mergers that lead to mass layoffs, higher prices, fewer options for workers and consumers alike. My executive order includes 72 specific actions. I expect the federal agencies, and they know this, <laughs> to help restore competition so that we have lower prices, higher wages, more money, more options, and more convenience for the American people. Today, I want to focus on three specific actions. First, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. We're going to work with states and tribes to safely import prescription drugs from Canada. That's just one of many actions in the executive order that will lower prescription drug prices. Second, the FDA is going to issue rules so that hearing aids can be sold over the counter. That's something the last administration was supposed to have done but didn't do. We're going to get it done. After these rules go into effect, a pair of hearing aids can cost hundreds of dollars, not thousands. And you'll be able to pick them up at your local drugstore. Third, we're going to improve competition for workers. I've talked a lot about non-compete agreements, contracts that say you can't take another job in your field, even if you get a better deal. I made a speech, I was just reminiscing with my staff, back in 2018 at the Brookings Institution, where I talked about the non-compete clauses that were just, I found to be absolutely ridiculous, but how prevalent they were throughout industries. At least one in three businesses require their workers to sign a non-compete agreement. These aren't just high-paid executives or <clears throat> scientists who hold, hold secret formulas for Coca-Cola so Pepsi can't get their hands on it. The recent study found one in five workers without a college education, is subject to non-compete agreements. They're construction workers, hotel workers, disproportionately women and women of color. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.